Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 92, Revelation, the Mark of the Lamb. And in this episode, we're going to look at the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14, which despite the fact that this is a new chapter, is really a continuation of the same thoughts and the same ideas that John had introduced to us from chapter 13. And if you remember how that passage ended, it was a caution and a warning against the faithful not to look to the beast and to his mark of protection and of peace and of security for their own peace and protection and security, but rather to remember that as followers of the lamb, they aren't to be sucked into the ways of the beast. And as Revelation 14 opens, we are faced once again with this idea of a mark or a seal on the foreheads of those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And so what John wants to do is to paint a picture of the future that awaits the faithful, those who hold out, finding their security and identity and peace and rest in the ways of this world and are eager for a time when all of the faithful will be gathered around the first fruits of those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And so John in these several verses, which we're going to have fun looking through scripture and how it highlights these themes and images for Christians, for the faithful, for the saints to identify and to help us remember who it is that we are called to be now, because one day we will ultimately be secure in the presence of the lamb as Revelation 14 outlines for us. So I am excited to share with you a few perspectives, remind us of a little bit about where we've been, and then to set us up to go forward. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 14 verses 1 through 5. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. Now, as I said in the introduction, that this Revelation 14, 1 to 5, forms a contrast image to the images and vision that John had just given us in Revelation 13. And part of the contrast involves the fact that there are two opposing forces, the ways of the lamb and the ways of the beast. And in fact, each one of these opposing forces is given three characteristics, and we've walked through these, but let me just remind you of them again. Each one has a city, an animal figure of some kind, and then those who bear that animal figure's mark. So on the one side is the city of Babylon with the beast, and then those with the mark of the beast on their foreheads. This was Revelation 13, the last few verses. On the other side are Zion, the city of Zion, the lamb, and then those with the mark of the lamb on their foreheads. 
And so this is the shift right here now. We've looked at in, in great detail in Revelation 13, the destructive nature of Babylon, the beast, and the mark of the beast. Now we're shifting. We're going to see Mount Zion, the lamb, and those with the mark of the lamb on their foreheads. And it, this is a turning point here because now with both sides clearly defined, Revelation chapters 14 through 20 are going to present visions of God systematically dealing with each one of these opposing forces. And that's sort of the way the rest of the book is going to unfold. And so John wants us to remember who it is that we are, what kind of mark we bear as followers of the Lamb. He wanted this for the first churches or the churches rather of the first century and wants the same for us today. And so what I want to do in this episode is remind us of a couple of places we've been, and then I want to walk through a handful of scripture passages that speak from Old Testament and New Testament, all of the images that John is using to describe this um, group of people that are sealed, if you will, with the mark of the Lamb. And I titled this episode the way that I did explicitly on purpose to be a perfect contrast to the episode that came before. So episode 91 was the mark of the beast. This episode is the mark of the lamb because this is exactly how John wants us to understand it and the descriptors that we will use here and that will carry us on through, particularly in chapter 17 and in chapter 18, where we will see the characteristics most vividly being described um, regarding the city of Babylon, the beast, and those with the mark of the beast on their foreheads. And so to jump right in, I won't spend the time to repeat the 144,000. Um, this number shows up twice here in Revelation 14. If you wonder what that means and have jumped into this podcast recently um, and you missed episode 72, The Sealed Servants of God, or episode 73, The 144,000, and then episode 74, the white-robed multitude. Those were three back-to-back-to-back episodes I did on Revelation chapter 7 to give us an indication of what is happening there with the symbolism and the numbers that John is using. And I would highly encourage you to go back, check out those episodes, even going back in to maybe it is episode 61. I'm drawing a blank now, but where I talked about the church at Philadelphia where we first get this indication of, of a mark, of, of a name of the Father and a name of Jesus um, written on people and how that theme can be traced throughout the book. So in Deuteronomy 6, as I referenced last week, which I'll reference one more time, is the, the Shema, uh, the greatest commandment Jesus identifies as in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, the frontlets between your eyes is ultimately what John is getting at when he speaks about Jesus's name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on people's foreheads. 
It's the same kind of image that is used to describe where the beast's mark goes. And it is not meant to be understood as a microchip. This is dealing with ultimate heart loyalty. It's dealing with allegiances. It's dealing with where you actually turn to provide security for you or peace or well-being. And to remind us again of the first century context of the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. So in the gospel, when we declare, when Paul declares, when John declares, when Peter declares that Jesus is Lord, that was a very active political statement. We believe in a nation that has a king, Caesar, that Jesus is actually king. And that's the way this would have been understood. In fact, Jesus will ask his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, who do people say that the son of man is? And then he turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, voices the, the bedrock of the church's foundation, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, what's oftentimes overlooked is where Jesus and his disciples are when Jesus um, asks this question. They're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this place was named after Caesar. Like this place got its name because of the king of the Roman Empire. And here it is in this place where Jesus is posing the question, who is the king? And when Peter, of course, voices that Jesus is the king, that is the correct answer. And Jesus tells him that, that this has come from my, from my father in heaven. This is not, you know, you didn't come up with this on your own. God revealed this to you. And the point is, that allegiance and loyalty to a king is a central idea. It's a central idea for your faith, for mine, but it was very central in the first century, and John is simply picking up on all of that in the way that he speaks. And so we, as, you, as you continue on through the passage, if we skip down actually to Revelation 14, 4, we've got this idea of it is these that have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So what, what John is describing here with the 144,000 people that are redeemed from the earth as first fruits, those who follow the lamb in their mouth, no lie was found for their blameless, blameless. They are virgins. They've not defiled themselves with women. We're not talking here about a limited select group of celibate males who are residing in heaven. These are symbolic terms They've always been symbolic all through the book of Revelation, even having, you know, a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. We're going to get to that in a second because there is a lot of powerful imagery going on there as well. But what John wants us to understand is this is the community of the faithful. This is Jesus's community, the Lamb's followers. Jesus called disciples to himself all through the gospels with the words, come follow me. We know this. This is instinctive. We know that, that Jesus is calling disciples to follow him. And the disciples, those who follow Jesus and become citizens of his kingdom, then turn around and form the church, which is a local expression of the communal kingdom life that we are going to one day enjoy forever, but are encouraged to begin living out in the present, which is precisely what Jesus made possible by his death and by his resurrection. 
So the church, the community of the faithful, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, these are all terms that are used all through the New Testament, metaphorical ideas to explain this one new reality. And so in Revelation 14, 4, John says that they are virgins. Well, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, here's what he says. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul picks up on language that Jesus uses, that John uses in the gospel of John in referring to Jesus as the bridegroom, but then actually uses the idea of, I presented you as a pure virgin, right? We're not talking about sexual relationship here. We're talking about intimate covenant faithfulness and covenant community, now, it, it's kind of funny. I, I used to be a youth pastor and I had a handful of leaders around me and one of them was a fantastic guy. He was uh, significantly older than me, 20, 25 years older, um, just great, super eager to learn. He would sit and listen to my teaching and then he would be the one that would come to me afterwards with questions and was just very hungry, very eager. And one night, we were working our way through the book of Ephesians and he came to me afterwards and he said, you know, I've never really been able to relate with being the bride of Christ. I mean, like me being married to Jesus, like that just feels weird to me. And I just, oh man, we had a fantastic conversation after that question because he came by it honestly. But the trouble that my youth leader was having was that he was thinking about these metaphors in individualistic terms. He was thinking that he, as a man in his 50s, was somehow married to Jesus. And that to him felt weird. Well, maybe it should, because the imagery that John uses, that Jesus uses, that Paul uses, is not talking about individual Christians being married to Jesus. It is talking about the community of the faithful that he has redeemed are his bride singular. So this is why in John chapter two, you know, the master of the feast, when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana and he changes water into wine, the master of the feast then comes back and doesn't thank Jesus. Jesus actually doesn't show up in the rest of that little narrative right there, but he honors the bridegroom after the water becomes wine. The bridegroom in that ceremony is the one who gets praised or would have been the one that got rebuked if, in fact, they had run out of wine prematurely. And I'm thinking of inserting a, a sermon that I preached several um, years ago, or maybe it was last year, actually, where I talked about why then is Jesus' interest in honoring a bridegroom at a wedding? Well, that has a lot of symbolic overtones to it. Because in one chapter later, in John chapter 3, John actually calls Jesus the bridegroom. And he speaks of him as the one who's come for a bride. Ephesians chapter 5, probably the passage I was looking at when my youth leader came up to me in a conundrum. But Paul, Paul tells us in verses 25 to 33 that husbands and wives, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is referred to 
as a bride, the church is referred to as pure and undefiled the way a virgin might be spoken of as pure and undefiled. So all through Israel's history in the Old Testament, when they spoke of virgins or they spoke of purity or they spoke of adultery, it is so spoken about interchangeably between those who are unfaithful in the sense of committing idolatry or idolaters were oftentimes spoken of as adulterers because the people of God, Israel, had entered into a marital relational covenant with God and them going and bowing down to other gods or misrepresenting the real God in the way that they lived and treated one another was in God's mind like having committed adultery. And so John is simply using language like that to explain the purity, the wholesomeness, the innocence, the beauty. This is what Jesus feels and thinks about his church. He sees them as a spotless bride. He sees us as a glorious creation of his, some a group of people that he is making more and more pure so that we will one day experience a pure wedding. In fact, Revelation even speaks about this. It's remarkable. And so I want to push us forward just a little bit in order for us to keep remembering where we've come from. But five chapters ahead in Revelation, in Revelation 19, verses 7 to 8, we read this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we've got a bride and we've got saints, right? These are two words that are used by Paul all over the place in the New Testament. And this is why it, it's surprising to me and sad, honestly, but I, I once heard a fairly uh, well-known and well-respected um, pastor who writes commentaries who made the conclusion that because the word um, church doesn't appear in the book of Revelation after chapter 3, that's because the church is no longer present in the book. They've been raptured, okay? Now, many of you, if you follow along with my thinking, know that I am not a dispensationalist and I don't believe in the rapture, but, but whether or not I do, the idea is stunning to me that the word saints is used all through the book of Revelation many, many times after chapter three, of course. And yet how many of Paul's letters begin with to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Colossae, with the saints in, in Achaia, like, or I'm sorry, in Corinth or in Achaia, Paul uses the word saints all the time because they're just the holy ones. The church is the called out ones, but the saints are the holy ones. And it's just surprising to me that, that we wouldn't be able to make that connection. But I'm not here to pick on anyone. I'm not really know where that came from other than to say when you see that now the bride has made herself ready and she has this beautiful white dress, right, that we always think of bright and pure. What is that fine linen? It's the righteous deeds of the saints. So remember, John is exhorting the church to see what is really behind worldly empires and worldly powers. He is asking us to see that they are actually driven by the hand of Satan himself, who uses puppet kings to do his will on this earth and is calling the followers of Christ to be followers of the lamb. As he says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
But Revelation is again attempting to describe a city, an animal figure of some kind, and then those who bear the mark of that figure. Well, in Revelation 21, the next to the last chapter in the book, it says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in Revelation, the great city, Babylon, and the holy city, New Jerusalem, are contrasted all the time. And here, John is actually saying that the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride. Now, that's a funky image if you're trying to interpret this literally. Is John talking about a city or is he talking about a woman well, actually, he's talking about the people of God. Um, so is that a literal city? No. Is that a literal woman? No. But the imagery that is used all through the New Testament paints this picture. Well, John also tells us that um, these 144,000 were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And that is an image of what we see present in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We had the living creatures we had the throne, we had the, the, the elders, and, and so on. And we've looked at this at length, if, we, if you go back several episodes to when we talked about this. And that's why right in Revelation 5, it says that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So when John tells us in Revelation 14 that these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits, or the 144,000 who are singing this song have been redeemed from the earth, that's the same word used in Revelation 5.9, although there in the ESV it's translated ransomed. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It could just as easily be translated, and by your blood you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But I think Psalm 144 may also be in John's mind as he's describing these things because Psalm 144, 9 and 10 says this, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. And I think that passage is particularly relevant because we know that the way the beast seeks to gain followers is by threatening them with the sword. And the way the beast seeks to keep followers is to remind them that it's his powerful sword who will vanquish their enemies. And I've noticed people's tendency to align themselves with power are not always done it out of fear for what that power would do to you if you didn't give them a, their, your allegiance, but rather where you think other entities are going to bring you um, cause for fear and you're going to look to the strong, um, you know, powerful people to protect you from the really bad people. Th this is how political structures work. This is how looking for a strong man actually works. This is how people tend to align themselves um, in militant fashion. It's ultimately an expression of where you think your freedom comes from. Who is it who's going to properly vanquish your enemies and keep your 
um, life in perfect peace. So this is the idea, and it's continual all through the Old Testament right on in to the New. But in the fifth verse of Revelation 14, it just is this short little phrase, and in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, ultimately, the idea of lying is not just speaking that which is untrue, which is, of course, the case, but the ninth commandment being not to bear false witness. And we've looked at length about the fact that the church is lampstands. We are called to be faithful witnesses. We shine light on the bread of the presence. That's the space in front of the lampstand. We shine light onto Jesus Christ. We bear witness to him. We testify not only to who he is, but to his ways in the world and who he has taught us to become as his people, as his bride. But the idea of there being no lies found in these people's mouths and them being blameless is their refusal to lie means their resistance to all the idolatrous propaganda of the false prophet, which we looked at in Revelation 13, which we'll see again in Revelation 16. The false prophet, the master of the lie, not the one that breathes truth and breathes life like the spirit of God indwelling the church, rather one who says, look, this is the way you're going to need to operate in this world. He makes the most sense out of it, draws people into worshiping him. John wants to make sure we understand that is a lie. Those who believe in the truth are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, despite what that means. And so we even see the idea of being blameless it's, it's the character of a sacrifice as the martyr's death was understood to be in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Go back and look at that again. It's the opening of the fifth seal. The souls under the altar were crying out for vindication. Their sacrifice, they were like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? Looking for this unblemished, um, lamb that was going to be able to offer a sacrifice. That's ultimately what we see with Jesus. And in fact, li- listen to the way Isaiah 53 describes this. One of the most famous Old Testament passages for looking ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus. Listen to the way Isaiah 53 describes this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now that's virtually the same phrase. There was in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. And here is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. There was no deceit in his mouth. This is the picture. First Peter two picks up on this for us. And he says, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges 
justly. This is the image. This is the idea of either saying nothing in one's own defense or when one is given the opportunity to speak the truth, you do that. You don't plead. You don't plead with the powers that be to preserve your life. In fact, we see this exact illustration playing itself out in John 19. Jesus is standing before Pilate. He is not answering Pilate's questions. Pilate is asking him all sorts of things. Jesus is saying nothing. He's literally doing what Isaiah 53 said he would do, yet he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. It repeats it twice in the first verse of Isaiah 53, 7. But Pilate says to Jesus in John 19, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now that's stunning to me because Pilate is in fact in charge in Judea at Caesar's recommendation, at Caesar's behest. Caesar has put Pilate in charge and Pilate is saying, don't you know that the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you is in my hands? And Jesus hadn't been speaking to Pilate at all. He hadn't been looking to Pilate. He didn't cave under Pilate's questioning. Jesus said nothing. When, when Pilate finally pressured him, Jesus's words were not, okay, you're right. I don't want to die. This is terrible. What are you going to do to offer me hope? What he said was, you actually wouldn't have any authority at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now that's bearing witness. That's testifying to the truth. That is speaking the truth gently, convicting, or, you know, convincingly and firmly in the face of actual death. And this is why when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he talks about God's firm foundation standing, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. This idea of having his name and his father's name written on our foreheads and the Lord knowing us and the Lord protecting us and the Lord guarding us and the Lord keeping us. As Numbers chapter six says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We are trusting in the Lord to keep us. We're trusting in the ways of the lamb to preserve us. He has redeemed us from mankind as first fruits. In our mouths, no lie is found for we will one day be blameless in his sight. He tells us in Ephesians chapter one, he tells the church there that he has chosen them from before the foundation of the world that they might be holy and blameless before him. This is what salvation is aimed at. It is aimed at rooting out in all of us the very things that prevent us from having close, intimate fellowship with God. Jesus comes in and forgives us of the sins and of the transgressions and of the failures on our part to do and live and be the very things that would, are necessary in order for us to have that relationship. He steps in our place and does this for us so that we find we now have the freedom to come clean with all of the things still plaguing our hearts, still plaguing our souls, still plaguing our lives. And he is on our side now, interested in graciously but firmly 
taking care of each one of those elements so that we can become more and more pure and ultimately holy and blameless before him. That's his goal. That's the picture. That's the forward momentum. That's the forward progression. That is where we are all headed. Revelation 14, while it describes in part things that are true of Christians, of saints along the way, it is ultimately this beautiful vision of the destination. And this is why, because of the resurrection of Jesus, which everybody thought was going to happen at the end of all things, because the resurrection of Jesus happened in the middle of history, Jesus brought the end into the middle. So the fact that the end of the ages has begun means that the church now experiences things that we are already seeing, that we were already sensing about what life in the eternal kingdom of God will one day look like. Jesus has said, then I want you by faith, since you know that end result is secured, I want you to begin living out that kind of a reality now. And so we know in the end, all swords are going to be turned into plowshares. We will know the ways of peace. War will be no more. So Jesus says, then go ahead and start living that way now. We know that there will be no more you no know, more death, no more violence, no more destruction. Okay, Jesus says, then begin living that way now. Where do you see death and violence and destruction taking place in human relationships between communities, between nations? Work out a way to live as if the end has already happened. Why? Because it has. And so in Revelation, despite the fact that many of, of common, you know, um, Modern, not common, modern people read this book as if it's all future. There is this strange relationship between the present and the future. That's always the relationship between Christians as they read their New Testaments, as they seek to live out their lives, because the future, the resurrection of all things, has already happened in the person of Jesus. He's already started that process. He's going to complete it, yes. But that process has begun, and Paul tells the Philippians that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so there are elements of truth-telling now. Paul tells the Ephesians to speak the truth in love so that we might all grow up together into one mature person whose head is Jesus Christ. Well, here in Revelation 14, we're told that in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the ideal. This is the goal. We are truth-telling people. We want the truth, all of the truth, even when the truth makes us look bad. If we love the truth, not wanting to just look good, then we will be speak people who speak the truth and will truly be blameless. This is the goal. This is the picture. And John is giving us this vision, giving the faithful this vision so that they can hold out hope in the midst of all the destruction, chaos, anarchy, and death going on all around them, and the temptations to back off a little bit on this call to purity that Jesus sets before them, John is saying, it'll be so worth it. Let me give you a picture of where we're headed. Let me give you a picture why this is so significant. Hang on, guys. I don't want you to go down with the ship. Babylon, the beast, and those who bear his mark are going down with the ship. Understand, 
every tendency and temptation to believe in anything and root your identity in anyone other than the lamb and his father is going to end in destruction. Don't go there. Trust the lamb all the way. One of the most beautiful things I think about this passage in Revelation 14 is just how intertwined it is with both the descriptions of those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, but also the fact that the lamb himself, um, when identified as a bridegroom, is in fact meant to be united with those that follow him. And even in the language that Jesus uses in quoting from Genesis chapter 2, where um, the man and his wife were, you know, the two shall become one. And this idea that Paul then attaches to Jesus and the church is that the two shall become one. And even the way that John uses language and the way that Daniel, and particularly Daniel 7, uses language, it's really remarkable. And it's easy to miss if you don't know exactly what you're looking for or if you're not aware that these connections are just happening right under your noses but there isn't some there is some intense unity language being used and it's coming actually out of our passage here in Revelation 14 so i just want to as we kind of conclude this episode i just want to bring your attention back to verse 2 where john says that i heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder Um, He goes on to say that the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song. So as you you read this story, you know, there's 144,000 who have his name and then, but I heard a voice from heaven. That kind of sounds like it's singular, right? I heard one voice like the roar of many waters, but the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists, plural, playing on their harps and they were singing a new song. Before the throne. And then you find out in the next verse that it's the 144,000 who know this song and no one else does, right? So there is some intense um, personal nature to this, right? That only the 144,000 know this song. They, they're the only ones who know it. And so um, it's almost as if the song that they sing, um, it's, it's secret. It's known only to them. And that's a fascinating concept to just ponder because in marriages between a husband and a wife, there are lots of things that only each of them knows about the other when no one else does. And so, of course, in the idea of it being a secret, right, it's the purpose of the secret isn't that they're going to keep God's glory, you know, hidden or anything like that, but it is a symbolizing the incredible truth that sinful people redeemed by the Lamb are uniquely qualified by that experience of salvation to honor him and to praise him in ways that even the purest or highest elders, four living creatures, angels, whoever else isn't able to grasp. In fact, I'm not sure if you are aware, but in the last verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told that even angels long to look into the things of salvation because there's an aspect to that that not even angels can grasp. It is an intimate, personal, deep understanding of knowing and of being known 
that happens on an earthly perspective, most clearly in a marriage, but in the relationship that actual Christians can have with Jesus, there is an intimate acquaintance and knowledge that only they are able to adequately offer back to him as praise. And so this is again, the image that John is using. And the reason he's using this as his image is because of the intense overlap. And let me just give you one example. If you remember in Revelation chapter one, when we read the description of one like a son of man, right? He's standing in the midst of the lampstands and I'm just trying to flip to it so I can make sure I quote it right for you. Um, but he's standing in the midst of the lampstands, you know, clothed with a, with um, a long robe and golden sash around his chest. It says in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now that's interesting because that is the exact same word choice John uses in Revelation 14 too to describe the community of the faithful, of those who follow the lamb, of the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. They are, the voice John hears is like the roar of many waters. And in chapter one, verse 15, John says, his voice was like the roar of many waters, this son of man's voice. Now, if you think back to the son of man language, Um, It begins in Daniel chapter seven, and we'll get there in just a second. But it's interesting because Daniel in his understanding of the son of man and his understanding of a kingdom that is going to be given to the son of man, the idea of like the sound of many waters doesn't even originate with Daniel. It originates with Ezekiel. And it is spoken about for the first time in reference to God almighty. And here's how Ezekiel one verse 24 puts it. I heard the sound of the living creatures wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. Now, Ezekiel 1 is some of the strangest, um, you know, (laughs) language you'll probably read in the Old Testament, but Ezekiel is connecting three ideas. It's like the living creature's wings are making a noise like the sound of many waters, which is like the sound of the Almighty himself, which is like the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And here in Revelation 14, particularly as it relates to this idea of the saints and those who follow the lamb and the battles that the Lord's people are actually engaged in the way Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter six, which our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What we're getting is this idea of a very similar connection between the army of the Lord's people and the Lord himself and the heavenly creatures who worship around his throne. Well, here in Revelation 14, John is now saying, oh yeah, that army who surrounds themselves around the throne, yeah, that's the people of the lamb. That's the followers of the lamb. In fact, the way they sing to him, the voice that I heard was like the roar of many waters, the exact same phrasing used to describe Jesus himself from Revelation chapter one. 
And so if we go back into Daniel 7, which is where we would need to go if we want to understand this son of man, this is how John describes Jesus in Revelation 1. I saw one like a son of man standing in the midst of these lampstands. And this son of man idea comes from a vision Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7, which is given to him in response to a set of visions where he sees and recognizes four beastly kingdoms that are wreaking havoc in the world, one of which is Babylon, the very kingdom Daniel is a part of when he receives these visions. And here's what it says in verse 13 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. This is um, fascinating metaphorical language to describe God Almighty on his throne and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. So he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom to him. If you flip down several verses later in Daniel 7 verse 15, well, let me just keep reading the passage, I guess. It says, um, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now that's really weird because in Daniel 7, 14, it says to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom. And then several verses later, when they are given the explanation, um, this is how it's put in verse 22, actually. And verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then in Daniel seven and verse 27, we read this and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, to him was given a dominion. The saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom. The people of the saints of the most high will receive the kingdom, but his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So whose kingdom is it? The son of man's or the saints? And the answer is both this is why in our passage, we see a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and they were singing. And then in Revelation nineteen six, the verse immediately before the verse I read about the marriage supper of the lamb, listen to the unity that's painted for us again. The voice of a great multitude. Actually, let me just open it up. I wrote down a portion of the verse in my notes, but let me give you the whole thing. Revelation 19 says this. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, the kingdom of the saints of the Most High, the kingdom they receive is the kingdom that the Lamb, the Son of Man, the Messiah, has in fact earned. He has taken on the beasts and has become victorious over them. John is saying that same kingdom is being extended to you. And the way you are going to remain faithful in executing that kingdom is in the exact same way that the son of man initially earned the kingdom in the first place. And so in the New Testament, this union language, this union with Christ, this the two shall become one, this bride and bridegroom, this intimate secret knowledge between the two, this 144,000 being able to praise a song to the lamb that only they know because it is a personal intimate experience that qualifies only those who have personally encountered the lamb himself who are able to utter this song, this union and intimacy language, this connection between the lamb, Jesus, and his followers, the saints, is so tight-knit that in the book of Acts, when Saul is persecuting the church and he comes face-to-face with Jesus while he is blinded on the road to Damascus and is knocked off his horse, listen to this passage again. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, you know that Saul is breathing threats against the disciples of Jesus. We're told this in Acts 9.1. And yet when Jesus, when Paul falls to the ground, Jesus says to Saul, not, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, this is the union language, the intimacy language, the in Christ language and Christ in you language that the New Testament is obsessed with because who Jesus is to us, we are supposed to be for the world. Who Jesus is before the Father, we get to be before the Father. What happened to Jesus at the cross happened to us at the cross. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. Wherever Jesus is, we are. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. The blessings Jesus receives, we receive. The curses Jesus receives, we rest in him. We are united to him. We are connected with him. We are sharers of the blessings in and through him. And so our ultimate hope for the end of all things 
is going to be found in the exact same person and following in the exact same ways of the lamb himself who brought that end into the, to the, the present, who made that future space our present reality, who set us free from sin and death, who allowed death to crush him so that he could set us free. That's the mentality. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a little Christ. And that's precisely what the early church was, and that's precisely what Jesus intends for us all still to be. And so John's picture here is of this intimate connection that we share and experience with the Lamb. We follow him. We are right on his heels every step of the way. And as hard as it was for the disciples to realize what following him actually meant, Jesus showed them perfectly clearly what it would entail. And Peter initially wanted to reject Jesus's t- telling him that it was going to come through suffering and death. And then Jesus has to rebuke Peter. But then when Peter receives the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, who empowers him to not only understand the truth, but to embrace it and to live it, Peter is a transformed person. And this is what John is calling the church to be, is to be transformed people through the power of the spirit who are so united to Jesus that we literally become his very body on earth. And that's the hope of Revelation 14, one to five. That's the hope of this entire book but I hope that this is helpful for you because I want to encourage you along your journey. I want to encourage you in your churches. I want to encourage you in your small groups. I want to encourage you in your families or wherever you are that Jesus would be central in your life, that he would be central in his people's lives and that where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst of them. That's hopeful and we need one another today more than ever. And so find a friend, find a Christian friend, find a family member, tell them you love them, reach out, be an encouragement to them in any way that you can, remind them uh, as well as you remind yourself of the union that we can experience in and through Jesus um, as, as his people. So that's all the time I have for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Like I said, I, I most likely will put a sermon in coming up soon uh, talking about Jesus's turning the water into wine because we're going to have the chance to begin to see some images that John uses as it relates particularly not just to blessing and what wine communicates through blessing but also how wine is oftentimes a, a picture of judgment as well and how Revelation will use the symbolism of wine and of blood Um, both in the ways that Jesus did centering around communion, but also the way in which he chooses to describe judgment and oppression and violence and destruction. And so Revelation, again, gives us the tools we need to be able to hold those two opposing realities in tension and to see Jesus's place smack dab in the middle of both of those things, um, reinterpreting them both for us. So, Hope you'll continue to listen, share the podcast with a friend, give me a rating or review if you haven't already done so, and I will talk to you next time. Have a great week.